Mark's gospel begins with these words, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah. If Mark's gospel has one main theme, it's this, that Jesus is the Messiah. And a couple of weeks ago, we saw how chapter one opens with everybody affirming the truth of this statement. Uh, So first we have John the Baptist. Uh, He tells his audience that one is coming after him who will baptize not with water, but with the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus himself is baptized and the Holy Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove and a voice comes from heaven saying, you are my son whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. So God the Father and God the Holy Spirit affirm it. Jesus affirms it or at least hints at it. He says the kingdom of God has come near. Even the forces of evil uh, recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. When Jesus confronts a man who is possessed with an evil spirit, the spirit cries out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So Mark's gospel begins with this big arrow pointing to Jesus, who is, according to Mark, Israel's long-awaited Messiah. Uh, Mark then demonstrates the truth of this claim by recounting a number of Jesus' healing miracles. So first we have Peter's mother-in-law who is in bed with a fever and Jesus uh, helps her to her feet and the fever leaves her immediately. Uh, People in Capernaum and the surrounding areas, they hear uh, that Jesus is able to heal so they bring all their sick and their demon-possessed to Jesus and he heals them. Uh, Last week, we heard Rick talking about uh, the man with leprosy who came to Jesus in desperation, and Jesus healed him. And today, we come to the uh, healing of the man with the withered hand. And things are heating up because this healing was done on the Sabbath, the holy day when no one was allowed to work, and this didn't go down at all well with the religious leaders, the Pharisees. So we're going to try and understand why these religious leaders were so opposed to Jesus. And we're going to do so under three headings. They all begin with P, pride, parley, and plot. Pride, parley, and plot. Firstly, pride. We all have a certain amount of pride, don't we? Uh, For a start, I I don't think... um, any of us can, can say that we don't care what anybody else thinks. I mean, people do say that, but actually deep down, we do care what other uh, people think, don't we? Uh, I wonder, have you ever made a total fool of yourself? I think we all have, haven't we? Uh, I once fell over with my hands in my pockets. Has anyone ever done that? You won't admit to it, but I bet there's one or two people who have done that. I, I tripped and I could feel myself falling, but my hands were so wedged in my pockets that I couldn't get them out in time, and I just hit the deck like a sack of potatoes. And then I'm kind of writhing and wriggling around on the ground, trying to get my hands out of my pockets. And when I got them free, despite being injured, the first thing I did was to look around to see if anyone had seen me do it. That's pride. I, I, I want to look good. I don't want to look like a fool. And religious pride is an extension of that. We want to look good. We want people to respect us. We want to elevate ourselves. According to the dictionary, pride is having a high or inordinate opinion of one's own dignity, importance, merit, or superiority. And religion that is separated and disconnected 
from Jesus will either lead to religious pride or a feeling of total failure. You see, there's a fundamental difference between Christianity and every other world religion. Every other religion of the world basically says, work at being good and you will earn God's approval. If you pray enough, read the holy writings enough, wear the right clothes, eat the right food, pray in the right way, help enough people, live according to this or that moral code, if you do all that, then hopefully you will have done enough to be right with God. So then those who feel like they've done enough or are doing enough become proud. And those who feel like they're falling short work even harder or they become disillusioned and give up altogether. Christianity has a much more realistic view of human nature. Christianity says, yes, we are sinful. Yes, we need to change. But it also recognizes that we can never be good enough to earn a right relationship with God. We cannot earn a golden ticket that gets us into heaven. We need Jesus. Only Jesus takes away our sin. Only Jesus can put us right with God. Uh, Christianity is unique. As Christians, our right standing before God is not dependent on the good things that we do. It's not dependent on our works. We don't deserve anything. But in his great love for us, God offers us everything through Jesus. Our right standing before God is a free gift of grace. And we receive that gift by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. So we have Christianity and we have all the other world religions. We have grace and we have works. And works-based religion encourages pride. If it's about works, we get to say, I do everything that's required Therefore, I'm good enough. In fact, I'm a lot better than all these people over here who aren't doing what's required. But if it's about grace, we don't get to say that. If it's about grace, we have to say, well, actually, I know that I'm not good enough. But Jesus puts me right with God anyway. Now, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were full of religious pride. For them, it was all about looking good. Everything was about outward appearances how would they be perceived and to be honest they were perceived in a fairly favorable light I mean we tend to see the Pharisees as like these pantomime villains you know these ultimate baddies Uh, but the fact is they were held in very high esteem they were the leading Jews they taught the scriptures they passed the traditions on to the next generation they were seen as morally upright Uh, that they they didn't get involved in any kind of scandal or controversy. People looked up to them, and they loved it. And they loved the Sabbath because there were so many extra rules and regulations that they could look all the more pious. But these extra rules and regulations, they didn't come from God. Here's what God commanded Moses concerning the Sabbath. He said, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. It's a very simple command. Uh, No one, and that includes servants and animals, no one is to do any work on the Sabbath. 
But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they wanted to break this down to the nth degree. So what constitutes work? Uh, Let's define this a bit more. And it just got ridiculous. In chapter 2, we read that Jesus' disciples were accused of breaking the Sabbath because as they walked through a field of grain, they were picking some of the heads of grain and eating it as they walked along. And the Pharisees considered that work. As far as they were concerned, the disciples were harvesting on the Sabbath. And they were grinding grain, not with a grinding wheel, a millstone, but just with their hands as they tried to get the grain out of the husks. That's how petty it got. The Pharisees loved all their rules and regulations because by keeping them, they came across as pious and disciplined. People respected them. They looked up to them. That They got the best seats in the synagogue. They were greeted in the marketplace. Uh, they were referred to respectfully as rabbi or teacher. The Pharisees embraced religion, but they rejected Jesus because he undermined the whole system that was making them look good. And even within the church, there are those who like the trappings of Christianity. They like the religious stuff, but in their hearts, they reject Jesus. Christianity appeals to some people because they think it makes them look respectable. Uh, that They want to be able to take the moral high ground. They think to themselves, well, I'm a Christian. I'm uh, morally upright. I'm a good person. But they don't necessarily want to face the reality of sin and invite Jesus into their lives to deal with it. The Pharisees hated Jesus because he saw straight through their religious facade. He exposed their sin and he called them to repentance. Imagine an Olympic athlete who wins the gold medal and he stands on the podium to rapturous applause. Everyone is full of respect and admiration. Following his victory, he gets inundated with requests from the media for television interviews. Uh, The whole country is proud of him and eager to hear what he has to say. And he gets used to it. The popularity, the respect, the acclaim. And then a few months later, he has to take a compulsory drugs test. And he's found to have a large quantity of a banned substance in his system. And there is no legitimate way that it could have got there. He comes crashing down to earth uh, with a bump. Not only can he no longer take the credit for his achievements, but he's also revealed as a cheat and a fraud. He has to face the reality of his wrongdoing, his hypocrisy, his sin. Well, this is the effect that Jesus had on the Pharisees. Jesus is the equivalent of a drugs test because he reveals what is going on inside of them. He revealed the Pharisees' hypocrisy, pride, and self-interest. Jesus revealed that despite their knowledge of the Scriptures and their supposed uh, wisdom and piety, they had virtually no knowledge of God. And the Pharisees hated Jesus for exposing this. Now, some some of us may be thinking, okay, I get it. I know I'm not a good person. That is to say, I'm sinful just like everyone else is sinful. I know that I can't deal with my sin. Only Jesus can deal with it for me. Uh, But I have given my life to Jesus, and therefore I don't think I need a warning about religious pride. I think we all need it to be 
reminded and warned of the dangers of religious pride because it creeps in so easily. It's insidious. For example, do we ever hold judgmental attitudes? By the way, judging someone goes beyond simply recognizing that their behavior is wrong. You, you can recognize that somebody's behavior is wrong without judging them. You know, if, so, if you see someone punch someone in the face and you think or say, that's out of order, you're not being judgmental. You are just recognizing sin for what it is. Being judgmental is when we look at someone and we say, well, at least I'm better than that person. Being judgmental is trying to take the moral high ground. And Jesus had a lot to say about this, didn't he? You remember the uh, parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. But do we ever do that? Do we ever look down on other people for any reason? Hmm. They don't come to church very often. I'm pretty regular. Or, hmm, their children aren't very well behaved. Mine, on the other hand, are wonderfully behaved, if only. Or, that person doesn't share my perspective. I'm not even sure they're a real Christian. Or, if they were a real Christian, they'd be serving like me. I do this every week. What do they do? Potentially, all of these attitudes are symptoms of religious pride. And they perhaps indicate that there is something wrong with our motives. Why do we do what we do? Do we do it because we love Jesus? Or do we do it because we want people to think well of us? So we've heard about pride. And Jesus constantly challenged the religious pride of the Pharisees, which brings us to our next uh, P, our next heading, which is Pali. And just to clarify that a Pali is an informal conference between enemies. And what we see in today's passage is that Jesus deliberately confronted his enemies on the Sabbath. Uh, He engaged in what must have been a very tense exchange with the Pharisees. And the first thing we read is this. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if they would heal him on the Sabbath. So straight away, we're given an insight into the Pharisees' motives. We have here this man with the withered hand, and the Pharisees have absolutely no compassion for him. They don't care about him at all. They just want to use him as bait to see if Jesus will violate the Sabbath by healing him. You see, their law prohibited a doctor or physician from doing any kind of work uh, on the Sabbath, and, and there are even very strict rules about um, caring for sick relatives on the Sabbath. So if someone was literally about to die at the point of death, you, you could uh, act, you could step in to save that person. But if it wasn't life-threatening, you weren't allowed to deal with it on the Sabbath. So they're watching Jesus. Will he heal the man or not? And what's even more perverse is that they desperately want Jesus to break their Sabbath rules so that they can accuse him. Now, Jesus could have easily waited a day to heal this man. In fact, he would have only had to wait till evening, till sunset, when the Sabbath would have been over. But Jesus doesn't wait. I mean, presumably, this man had a withered hand his whole life. What difference would a few more hours make? Jesus doesn't wait because he wants to reveal uh, their religious pride and their hypocrisy. He wants to expose it. So Jesus says to the man with the withered hand, 
Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they remained silent. Jesus didn't ask them, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Uh, What he asked them was a much easier question than that. Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? It's a no-brainer, isn't it? Thou shalt not kill. It's one of the Ten Commandments. It's not lawful to kill on any day of the week, let alone the Sabbath. But they don't answer. They remain silent. Because they can't answer the first half of the question without answering the second half. Is it lawful to do good or to do evil? Is it lawful to save life or to kill? If they say that it's unlawful to do evil and to kill on the Sabbath, then they are, in a sense, by process of elimination, saying that it is lawful to do good and to save life on the Sabbath. And they won't do it. They will not be cornered into compassion because they're not willing to take ownership of their sinful attitudes. You hear the force of what Jesus is saying, don't you? He's saying, who's in the right here? Who's honoring God? I want to heal this man and transform his life. You want to use this man and kill me. You tell me which is right. They say nothing. Silence. And it says he looked around them at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. And you can imagine Jesus looking around and getting eye contact with each person. He was angry. In fact, this is the only place in the Gospels that explicitly says that Jesus was angry. We can infer that he was when he turned over the tables of the money changers in the temple. But this is the only place that uses this word of Jesus. He's angry. And he's angry at their stubborn hearts. In other words, their hard-heartedness. Hard-heartedness is a refusal to come to God after he's called us to admit that we're wrong. Pride causes rigidity. Someone who is proud is completely inflexible. They will not change their position because they cannot bear the thought of being wrong. Have you ever done that? Have you ever maintained a position even after you've realized that you were in the wrong. After Caleb was born, I drove back to Tottenham. Tissa was in the hospital with Caleb. And I drove back to Tottenham with my mother-in-law. She was staying with us. She's over from Jamaica. And we we stopped in the high street, um, very close to our home, uh, to buy some food. So we got some food. We got back in the car. And then um, my mother-in-law started to give me directions back to the house. Uh, And being a bit tired and tetchy, I said, Sandy, this is where I live. I know how to get back to my house from here. Thank you. Uh, But because I was distracted and a bit annoyed, I I missed the turning back to my house. (laughs) And my mother-in-law said, oh, I would have gone down there. (laughs) And I said, well, you can get there just as quickly this way. And then I spent five or ten minutes trying to find my way back this roundabout route. Even though I knew I'd taken a wrong turn, I couldn't bring myself to admit it. That's pride. And I suspect that some, if not all of the Pharisees, knew that they'd taken a wrong turn. But they were too proud and hard-hearted to admit it. And that's why Jesus was so angry with them. Their willful refusal to do good 
instead of evil. So, so Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. And the irony is the healing was effortless. There was no work involved. Uh, technically, Jesus didn't break any of their petty man-made Sabbath rules because he didn't do anything that could possibly be construed as work. He just told the man to reach out his hand. The man did it and he was healed. How is that work? You might think, well, wouldn't that be enough to convince the Pharisees? After all, nothing like this had ever been seen before. But no, the Pharisees weren't interested in evidence. They just wanted to do away with Jesus, which brings us to our final heading. So uh, we've had pride, parley, and now plot. Verse 6 says, Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Here we have the super-religious Pharisees who would rather plot a murder on the Sabbath than see a man healed. Why? Quite simply because of their proud, their, their, their pride. Uh, they believe that they have earned a position or privilege before man and before God. They're respected and revered. And Jesus keeps upstaging them with his miracles. Not only that, but he seems to be undermining the very system that enables them to occupy this privileged position. And if that wasn't enough, he's now exposed their hypocrisy for all to see. The Pharisees really only had two choices. Repent or get rid of Jesus. Kill him. The result of cocooning yourself in religion is that you end up wanting Jesus dead. And we see this in the church today. There are those who would plot to kill Jesus in the metaphorical sense. For, for some churches, Jesus is a bit of an embarrassment. They don't want to talk about Jesus too much because then they might have to think about things like sin and judgment and repentance, which are all a bit unpop, uh, uncomfortable and not at all popular. So one way or another, Jesus and his message get silenced. Well, we want to avoid religious pride at all costs. Uh, this idea that we're pretty good, better than most, certainly better than so-and-so. There is nothing more repellent than a group of people who think they are better than others, especially when they hide beneath the veneer of religious pride. The more proud we are, proud of our moral uprightness, proud of our self discipline, proud of our religious attainment and achievement, proud of the things that we do. The more proud we are, the more resistant we are to the gospel of grace, this idea of being saved, but we don't do anything to, to earn it or deserve it. That's why the outcasts were so attracted to Jesus. They didn't have any pride to hold on to. We need to let go of our pride and recognize that we are sinful human beings in desperate need of a savior. And if you were here last week, you would have heard Rick, uh, who brilliantly described this leper who came to Jesus in total desperation. Well, that is how we need to approach Jesus, in total desperation, wanting him to heal us and to make us whole. The Apostle Paul wrote this, Man never boasts except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The gospel is very simple. 
We're sinful. Jesus loves us and has died for us. We just need to let go of our pride and put our faith in him completely. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize uh, that there are times when all of us uh, slip into pride and religious pride, thinking that we're somehow better, thinking that we're somehow more meritorious, uh, thinking that our life is so much more sorted than somebody else's. We pray, Father, that we'll be on our guard against this, that we'll recognize that actually we are just sinful human beings in desperate need of your love and forgiveness, in desperate need of your healing and the wholeness that only you can bring to our lives. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that we will come to you today, dropping our pride in desperation, wanting you so much to work in our life, to change us and transform us so that we can be the people that you have called us to be. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.